I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector, with new technology causing us to continually question the way that we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the individuals leading this revolution, and to investigate the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop safer and more sustainable mobility. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating. Today I'm joined by Becky Saltanian. Becky is head of computer vision and sensor fusion at a stealth mode startup, after previously serving in various development roles related to LiDAR and automated driving systems. The discussion today is focused on machine learning. We start with the definition to set the stage and then dig into various applications and aspects of machine learning that play a key role in the development of automated driving systems. Unfortunately, we had a bit of background noise that you'll hear while Becky is speaking, but nothing too bad, so I hope you bear with us. With that being said, please enjoy my conversation with Becky Saltanian. Today I'm joined by Becky Sultanian. Becky, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, to get us started, could you please introduce yourself and um, share a bit about what you're working on and kind of some of your background? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I'm really happy to uh, be here. Uh, I'm working on AI uh, and machine learning, particularly for robotics, for uh, you know. Um, for Internet of Things and many other applications. But the main core is AI, or uh, nowadays it's uh, a broad uh, field that we are using for machine learning, for modern machine learning, which becomes the deep neural networks and uh, many others, uh, algorithm propagating from robotic, from signal processing, and section of all of this. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. And and so you mentioned you mentioned machine learning and, and AI, and I guess both of those are topics that I haven't uh, haven't covered too much in depth yet in this interview series that I, that I've been doing. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to start kind of at the uh, kind of at the at the basics. So maybe could you provide um, a kind of in common common language? What's the definition or your definition of machine learning? Um, the definition of machine learning is a bunch of, uh, I can say, algorithmic uh, approach uh, that helps, as the name explains itself, to help machines to predict or have a sense of, uh, you know, understanding of their environment or do some tasks that most of the time, for example, for humans, it's easy. We see something and then we can interpret and based on that, make decisions or predict, okay, this is the next. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, machine learning in general, any algorithm that helps machines to make prediction, make decision to understand a better, uh, to having a better understanding of the environment. This is the uh, definition in plain words. And so the the alternative or the conventional, like old-fashioned approach would be the expectation that we can define these algorithms and have kind of rule-based decision-making. Um, is that accurate? Uh, sort of. For example, the previous approaches, for example, most of the, uh, I can say most of the uh, fields in majority of the fields that uh, there's a function and it's f of x equal x let's say power of two plus three times x plus for example a constant like five six whatever and then you know that if you change the x then the output 
what is the output? You just uh, calculate all of these terms and add summation of them, and then uh, voila, you have the answer. This is the mm -hmm. simplest, uh, you know, conventional algorithm if you want to talk about, for example, something similar to that. But when it comes to machine learning, we have a bunch of inputs, a bunch of data, and then we have the output, but then the algorithm decides what was the box in between that we fit this. I mean, the best thing that can define this input or map the input to the output. This is the sort of, we can say machine learning is sort of, uh, it's known. It's, we know what it is, uh, you know, the structure, uh, but it's sort of a black box that you have a data, fit it, and then you see the output, and then based on this, you make the decision what is the, uh, what is your function? It's not something that you have written before, I mean, writing somewhere and, you know, beforehand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And if, uh, I'm certainly not an expert in this space, but my understanding is there's kind of three key classifications. So supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement learning. Um, if, if that's accurate or, or feel free to correct, but could you help, help me understand kind of what, what are the differences there and um, what are the benefits of using one type versus the other? Uh, the thing that I used uh, as a, a model for machine learning is a supervised one, that you have a data, the input data, you see the, the output, which is the uh, prediction, and then based on that, you know that how your model should uh, react into new data that it sees. Uh, when it comes to the unsupervised, that means that you have just a bunch of data. It's mostly for clustering, for, uh, let's say, grouping data. So you can see even if you visualize the data, you can see, for example, a cluster up uh, on the, for example, right side of the uh, plot, and then there is another cluster in the left side, and then your machine tries to uh, figure out the boundary, the border between the two class, for example, in this example, or even it's more, then it's not just a line. Sometimes it's a, a circle. Sometimes it's a, a you know undefined shape that that shows which uh, new the newcomer you fit it to the uh, uh, you know to your model. Then the model will decide where that sits in the mm -hmm. output. Means that there is no information about the outputs, just make the decision and cluster them, separate them in this way. And then for the reinforcement learning, my knowledge is not that deep in that area. It's uh, a little bit different. Uh, but the way that I can say it's based on um, seeing the data and then uh, penalize that, uh, if I my understanding is correct, that, for example, you if you want to apply that for a car, um, let's say to use it for autonomously, mm -hmm. uh, or for example, an autonomous robot, then uh, when the robot goes to, for example, in a uh, sidewalk, so your robot is a delivery robot that's, uh, you know, patrolling, then in, 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 in the right side, there is, for example, a beautiful green grass area, and if the robot goes there, you penalize that, and the next time, Gradually, robots realize that the green side is absolute no, or if it goes to the curbside and, you know, jump to the street, again, you penalize it, and then uh, gradually it will learn its own way how to patrol, for example, or uh, maneuver inside the uh, sidewalks. This mm -hmm. is the basic that I can, I can say, and mostly it's used for gaming, for example. Uh, some of those, uh, when they, you know, the chess 
uh, human against the computer. This is how yep. the computer learns uh, to play with with, with the uh, user. Yeah, and I, I tend to think of, I don't know, like potty training a dog or tra- training a dog a, a trick or something, that, that reinforcement model. Um, I know it's not perfect, but it's similar type uh, idea. Yes, so, exactly. Yes, yeah, so you, you had mentioned, uh, and I want to transition now to kind of mobility applications. So you had mentioned uh, automated driving or robots, and I think either one, as I understand it, at the highest level you have, right, some some suite of sensors that are gathering information about the world around it. There is some um, some work that's done, like software, right, that's done to make sense of that world, build an environment in which this systems or this uh, vehicle sits. And then based on there, you're making decisions about what what moves to make, and then you're sending signals to actuators, and then uh, some, some action is taking place at, at the highest level. Um, if as we think about applications for machine learning, where, where does it fall in that process? Um, one of the, um, so there is a, a common practice, people separate machine learning from uh, modern machine learning, uh, which is new deep neural network reinforcement, deep reinforcement learning and all of that. Um, if I wanna say, uh, for example, for the robot perception, uh, previously they were using some uh, conventional com- uh, computer vision algorithm to see, I mean, to make the robot, uh, you know, to equip the robot uh, or robot car or whatever we are, I mean, the robot agent uh, that has a good sense of the environment that it's in it. Uh, so for this part, for example, one thing that I can mention is nowadays uh, vastly it's practiced to use the deep neural network, uh, for example, CNN, uh, sometimes RNN for, for you know, giving the robot uh, this equipment, I mean, equip the robot to see uh, the environment. And we can definitely classify it as a sort of machine learning or uh, we can say this is modern machine learning and then uh, the previous or conventional models, just uh, conventional machine learning. So this is one of the application in, in, in robots and uh, mostly for autonomous driving. And how, I, I, can, can you help me understand? So when you say deep or, or modern um, neural network or machine, machine learning, can you understand, understand how that's different than a conventional machine learning approach? Um, I can say conventional neural network would be a better term. Okay. Um, in late 80s, in beginning of 90s, uh, there was a model started with, uh, uh, some people call it vanilla uh, neural network. I don't know where that vanilla came, came from, but uh, it was a couple of layers, fully connected nowadays we call it, and all the uh, nodes in the uh, neural network was connected to the, uh, next layer and the prior layer. And it was computationally very, very uh, expensive and also it wasn't efficient because there were lots of parameters to be adjusted to get a result. And if we want to have a longer or as nowadays we say deeper net- network, it will be a lot of par- parameters probably. Uh, we need a couple of supercomputers just to adjust and, and calculate everything. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the beginning of that and why they call it neural network because it's a sort of vague resemblance of what exactly happens in the brain that, that your brain 
uh, the synapse get the you know the signal and then translate it or translate it to the next person you know it's sort of uh, sequence and in this model is as well it receives a signal or the input and then it just passes it layer by layer till it gets the output. Uh, then um, maybe around to 2012 the new machine learning or the, the new uh, neural network or the deep neural network came to the world and with the concept that they instead of connecting all the layers the layers are sparse the, the nodes are sparsely connected to each other uh, to the next layer and also the pre the prior one and as well they use sort of uh, to maximize the gain they use sort of correlation between uh, the predefined filters that goes and scan the input from each layer and then pass it to the rest of the layers uh, this way, the computation becomes less, and it was, you know, possible to add up, let's say, up to 25, for example, in, in, in VGG. Uh, VGG's uh, family, there are, you know, a stack of them together, or even, for example, for YOLO, it's just a convolutional layer stack up, up together till the end that, that's working together. And uh, surprisingly, the accuracy for the, this new approach was way higher than the previous one. So that was the reason uh, it's nowadays in favorable, the complexity, but at the same time, because we get the deeper network, it needs still to calculate all the coefficients and the coefficients are relatively really, uh, the, the amount is very, very high. And uh, that's why we need uh, a very good hardware to support that computation. That gotcha. And I'd like to uh, maybe transition a, a little bit and thinking of a specific case. So for, for an automated vehicle, automated um, <laughs> robot, the, the process of creating this 3D world in which the, the, uh, the robot or the, the vehicle exists, could you, could you speak to what goes into that and, and how, how we can build an accurate environmental model which in which these uh these things exist um there are for example you at the beginning you started way for for a robot to be able or any machine to get the uh, sense of the environment its environment they need some sensors so mm -hmm. it starts everything starts with the sensor set and uh for excuse me for particularly for autonomous driving uh, we have a, a set of, for example, vision uh, sensors like camera, mm -hmm. like LiDAR. Uh, we have radar and also um, IMU, GPS, and a sort of localization mechanism that can help uh, to localize uh, you know, the robots. And all of these data are coming. And after you know the rare raw data pre-processed, they, for example, they go to the model to make the decision. Uh, it could be just one model that make the decision about the traffic signs, different traffic signs, uh, uh, different, uh, for example, detecting the traffic lights, uh, then, for example, uh, predicting the traffic lights, whether it's going to be green, whether it's going to be, uh, you know, yellow, uh, or it's uh, uh, red, all of these um, should be detected and also for example for the lane detection it can mm -hmm. be a similar model uh, that performing in parallel depending on the hardware that's used and for the uh, lidar there are a couple of models that that has been used for example for 3d 
uh, object detection. It's uh, VoxelNet is one of the famous ones, but it comes with complexity or PointNet. It's a little bit uh, less complex and it's more affordable to look, to have it real time and everything. So um, for each of them, different models can be used or some of them can be, kept, can be combined together. And, you know, one model detects several objects. Uh, you know, these are uh, the way that the uh, robot gets a sense of, for example, whether this is a pedestrian in the street or it's uh, 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 someone with a bike just walking or the person is biking for real. This is a motorcycle, this is a truck, or all of these classes. Uh, this is how the robot will understand. And it, so it seems like, so say you, you're able to um, determine what type of object you're looking at. So you, you determine there's a, a pedestrian that's in the street. It's, it seems like the next critical aspect is figuring out, okay, what, not only what is the position in time right now, but what, how is that position going to change over the next however many seconds as, as a vehicle is approaching or, or things like that. So is that, what goes into making that decision about looking at, I guess, how, the, how a pedestrian is expected to move? Are those the type of predictions that we're making right now? This is hopefully uh, in many companies, I'm hoping that they do something similar or there is yeah. a similar mechanism. Uh, so this is the, the way that the, all these data in the perception, you know, get the sense that this is a pedestrian, then it will signal to the next block, which is the uh, prediction for, you know, uh, behavioral prediction or behavioral, uh, you know, block for, for, for the uh, robot, which is uh, by monitoring that uh, pedestrian for, let's say, uh, five seconds, 10 seconds, this is a criteria that we, it can be explored and, and see how, how long is enough, and then see whether the pedestrian, for example, suddenly uh, changed the direction and jumped in the crosswalk, or for example, wants to continue to the right completely or go straight forward. All of these are the uh, thing that, that uh, should be predicted. And the same thing applicable for the cars, particularly in the road. For example, when you're driving, even for a human driver, you have some sort of uh, mechanism to predict what is the guy, for example, in, in for example, behind uh, the way back, that's just somebody speeding up. Uh, you have to uh, predict whether he's going to, or she is going to tailgating your car or just, you know, pass you and take over and go to the next lane or what is the, uh, prediction. So um, definitely similar uh, block after the perception. It's in another block for the prediction that's predicting all these behaviors in the road uh, mm -hmm. for different agents. That's that's one of the things. And sticking sticking with the pedestrian again, just because it's it's easy for me to mm -hmm. conceptualize. But I'd like to think or talk a bit about what safety looks like or functional safety right of of the the vehicle and the the decision making algorithms here so if you have so the the safest option is you wait until the pedestrian is completely off the road before passing right and you you wait like there's you wait until someone crosses they're firmly planted on the sidewalk as long as soon as they come back on the road you stop and you just wait until the pedestrian's off the road but that's not how humans drive right humans we we make some predictions as someone's approaching we, we get a good feel, okay, is someone going to walk across and step? Like we, we know before they're all the way off the road, 
when we can start to put, put our foot on the gas and slowly inch forward. But I imagine it's risky to make those types of predictions as so there's, there's a trade-off right of safety versus time or efficiency and, and things like that. So how, yeah, maybe a rambling question, but how, how is, how are those safety trade-offs and consideration decisions made when we're thinking about implementing some of these uh, machine learning algorithms? Well, uh, each car uh, has, as you get back to the sensor set, uh, the sufficient sensor set, uh, there are different approaches. For example, some companies go with four LIDARs on, on each corner of the mm -hmm. car. Some companies go just with uh, a bunch of LIDARs in every places that they there is a blockage or there is a blind spot. Um, some people, I mean, some companies to make it more affordable because it's going to be a production and, and let's say something around 200K for a car, it won't be affordable for, you know, uh, yeah, personal use. Public. Yes, exactly. Um, so they go with less LIDARs and more cameras around. So each of these cameras, there is a possibility that, uh, you know, there's uh, well, most of the time there is a stereo camera that, that gets uh, from different angle uh, to see, I mean, the first the pedestrian. And for example, um, you can get the uh, data from one camera, it would process and it flags up that, for example, there is a pedestrian. And then from the LIDAR also, you will get the flags. And then uh, there is a rule of thumb that some, uh, you know, uh, companies practice that it says if out, two out of three says that the pedestrian will stay in the place, then, uh, for example, we'll consider that the uh, pedestrian will not uh, jump in front of the car. But this is not, uh, uh, you know, the uh, solution or um the permanent solution for that because there are some times that the, at the middle of uh, maybe the pedestrian just changed mind and it's not communicating with people so they can uh, change the direction and be at the middle as you mentioned at the middle of the uh, crosswalk uh, one of the thing that this is a little bit maybe radical I several times brought it up that nowadays everybody has a uh, mobile phone uh, a cell phone, most of the countries, most of the places, and that means that that sensor that can act as an extra sensor outside from outside communicating with the cops. Um, this is one approach, but it, it comes with the question of that, what about the privacy of people? And yeah. you know everything that's, that's maybe the pedestrian doesn't want to communicate with our car. Uh, but still getting in for more information will help to make this uh, decision easier. Uh, but uh, till the time is ready, I mean, till when, for example, we have a, a safe communication between a mobile and, for example, a car as a receiver, uh, till we get to that point, I would stick with the conventional way that waiting till completely it's clear and then uh, the pedestrian is not in the line of sight and everything is, you know, cleared and the car can continue. Um, because the promise that comes with the, uh, autonomous driving is to uh, save uh, lives. It's not supposed to run over people. It's mm -hmm. not a race that the car, uh, you know, compete with the human driver. Definitely the skills that the human has still, a machine cannot learn it. And it takes many, many, many years still. We have a, a computer 
uh, computation or center that can even be close to someone's mind as it comes to that decision, prediction, and everything. And brain is part of the human body that, to me, I think up to now it's still under investigation and it's not fully understood that how it works. That's why um, I would stick with the car, you know, the safe for the safety of everybody, I would stick with the, what you described, that whenever it's clear, then go. Even, for example, one of the challenge is the turn left, when mm -hmm. there is no uh, arrow traffic sign that, that says, for example, traffic lights that tell you this is now the turn you can go without even uh, looking around. Um, this one is one of the challenge, and what I proposed in the past that uh, try to route or planning in the way that everything goes with the right, uh, you know, turn. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as you can make the planning with that one, we can avoid uh, this uh, turn left. That would be more uh, conservative. It takes more time. Maybe the mm -hmm. passengers may not be happy about the longer distance that they had. They have to stay, but it's safer and it's, it's uh, you know, uh, for the safety of the passenger and the car, uh, I think it's the best. Yeah, and particularly for, so we're talking about movement of uh, of people, but if, if you have goods or some type of product that you're you're moving, um, as opposed to the people, I think that decision becomes even easier, right? Because you don't have anyone impatiently sitting on board. It's just, yeah, maybe you use a little bit more gas and you uh, and you take a little longer, but the, the safety trade off is. is probably not worth it in the short run. Yes, that's true. Cool. So I'd like, yeah, I'd like to transition to a couple of what I consider my, uh, my rapid fire question. So more, more about you, you personally and less about uh, the, some of these fun technical topics we're discussing or discussing. So three questions for you. Um, the first one is, is there a favorite book or um, favorite books of yours that you've particularly enjoyed and have had a, a big impact on you? Yes, I have two of them for me, uh, next to me, and, and uh, I, I swear that the, uh, I, I, I haven't got any commission for those introductions. It's just a great <laughs> book, and I think everybody should have it. Uh, one of them is The Deep Learning by uh, Ian Goodfellow. It's a very famous one. You can see I have two versions of that in two different time. I ordered it. That's when I lost one of them where someone borrowed my own book. And then there is a handbook of machine learning. It's uh, this one. And unfortunately, Theodore, this, this is the writer that I never could pronounce his name. This is the book. It's from everything that you need for robotic and machine learning, everything is included in this book and explained very well. So these are my two technical books that I love. And um, I can say from one of the books, for example, for Lifetime, the book was about the mindset that explains how people sometimes prevent themselves from success because their mindset is that I, I cannot do it. So. Uh, I was in this stage maybe 10, 20 years ago. I uh, after Actually, 20 years ago maybe, but uh, eight years ago I started reading this book and I didn't realize that 
the same thing as I mentioned. The brain is very powerful uh, <laughs> organ in 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 human body that sometimes even it tweaks, for example, some the person. Uh, so this is another book that I really enjoyed reading that, and it has a great impact on my life. Okay, definitely recommend that one. So not one of my typical questions, but you made me think of something here that I want to throw in a bonus question here. Uh, so you mentioned you, you mentioned those two kind of more technical textbooks on machine learning and and yeah, deep learning. Uh, what what is it that made you in, interested in this topic? And, and I think like for myself personally, human psychology and the way we make decisions in the brain is fascinating to me. And there's a decent chance if I'm uh, if I'm reading something that's not specific to mobility and work and things like that, it's, it's something about decision-making and psychology or cognitive biases and, and things like that. Um, but what is it, what was it for you personally that made you interested in this topic? Um, the part is, I mean, uh, for, for, uh, it's very, I mean, I, I, I love robotics. I love robots. I had, I mean, I'm mostly working on a software side. Uh, several times I made the robot, for example, an insect robot. There's a video even I can send it to you that the robot, the body is horrible. It lives. It's supposed to be an insect, but it's barely a frog. And uh, But the software was working for really great. And it's something around eight, nine years ago when I started with, with coding on, on boards and you know, uh, those embedded software boards and uh, that was the beginning and before that I had a uh, attempt to uh, hijack my uh, PhD thesis toward the robots that communicating or cognitive robots in, in, in warehouse or, or for example for cars communicating together um, that was that wasn't well received by uh, you know academy back then uh, but I continue and then I realized that this field of machine learning is full of algorithms, very beautiful, uh, that some of them I've used them for other applications, let's say in telecommunication and signal processing. And then when I realized I can uh, apply them for robotic and have a robot that's more cognitive and have a better understanding, um, that was the reason that I, uh, you know, uh, completely interested in and started with this space. Very interesting. And maybe th this might transition into the next question. So the next one is a, a hobby of yours. So outside of the, the every day to day work, what, what is something that you enjoy personally doing with, I guess, free time? Um, it's like I can answer with the cliche that I listen to music, I watch movies and read books. So like, yeah, I, I'm doing everything like this, like everybody else. But uh, my hobby is the robots, and I, I started recently to build and work on a robot. Even I recruited one of my, my son, 11-year-old son, doing some soldering for me, uh, sometimes introducing, uh, you know, explaining, and I take videos. I post it even on, on link, my LinkedIn. So um, robots and application of robotics is one of the things that I really, really uh, like it, and it becomes my life and my work and my hobby. Yeah, very cool. And the last of the, the three rapid fire questions. So thinking about uh, you personally and uh, I guess personal strength or, or something, what, what do you think it is something that you do well that uh, that has, has helped you to, I guess, do the, the cool things you've done, have the impact that you've had so far? Um, 
the strength maybe I can say this is uh, um, this is a very tricky question that can any answer can lead to some sort of sounds like arrogancy or something but yeah and uh, I, I can I, I can give the dis- disclaimer that I mean the, the, the reason I ask this is because I, I tend to believe that we are doing the best for ourselves and the world when we're playing to our strengths and we we all have these unique abilities right that uh that when, when we're leveraging those we're we're at our best and doing our best thing so with that being said yeah n- not not looking for arrogant brag but I, <laughs> I, yeah i think i i i have i can say i'm patient enough to yeah. follow something and i'm positive and always look at the uh, half full of the glass and forget mm-hmm. about the half empty one it's it's a good thing to have it but sometimes even it's not uh, that positive sometimes you have to see the problems to in order to solve it so i can say i'm patient i'm resilient to when i love something to do then i will go for that and uh, this is something the strength that i can see in myself that helped me uh, you know in the past and i'm hoping that in the future also it will be handy for me great and, and so just uh kind of open-ended two-part question to, to close here so the first is where can people learn more about you and what you're working on uh, and then the second is just uh open-ended if there's anything we missed here or anything that you want to share please, please feel free uh, for me, most of the time I'm communicating on, on LinkedIn. I have a, a, a lot of followers there, uh, you know, great people that yeah, trust me in me, what I'm saying, and they follow me. Um, I post my videos. I post about daily uh, life. Sometimes what happens, what's bothering me. This is one way. And I was thinking maybe I should build a website also to put some of the stuff a little bit more focused um, my LinkedIn is not only for myself. I want to network with people and I don't want to bother them with something probably is not their interest if they're interested and they go and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, get there. But for now, it's my LinkedIn that's uh, mostly I'm active on it and, and uh, share my thoughts and my stuff there. Great. Well, it, yeah, Becky, th- thank you very much for your time. I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion and, and learned a Likewise. lot here. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. It was great. I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast.